Welcome everyone to today's public event, Post-COVID-19 Futures of the Urbanizing World. This event is organized by the SOCI HOC Southeast Asia Center as part of the LSE's public event series on COVID-19, the policy response. I am Professor Hyunbang Shin, uh, the director of SOCI HOC Southeast Asia Center and also professor of geography and urban studies at the Department of Geography and Environment here at the LSE. It's a great pleasure to chair this event today. As a start, and let me just make a quick statement here. Um, our urbanized world is a restless place, presenting opportunities and prosperities for some, but also deeply entrenched in inequalities and injustice for others. These are reflected in the way our communities are shaped and also in the built environment, as such as uh, uh, and the, uh, the pandemic events such as COVID-19 perhaps do not just produce new normal conditions of living, rather it is compelling us to think about what kind of normal we want to realize as we reconstruct our city and our world. With this in mind today, we ought to address a number of questions uh, to explore the impact of COVID-19 on changing relationships between cities and their hinterlands. In our global urbanization process, the position of our cities in small towns and rural areas are always changing. And in thinking about post-COVID-19 futures of our urbanizing world, we really need to think about what sort of new relationships we are to envisage uh, in the future. In particular, the questions we ask today would include, what is the relationship between urbanization and infectious disease? How the cities and their hinterlands respond to the COVID-19 pandemic? Finally, what is the role of civil society in tackling the livelihood changes in urban and rural areas during the pandemic? To address these questions, we have the pleasure of having four uh, esteemed experts uh, who are all given these questions and will be addressing one or two of, their, of these questions in their uh, initial intervention. In the order of intervention, we have Dr. Creighton Connolly, who is Senior Lecturer in Development Studies and the Global South in the School of Geography at the University of Lincoln. Before joining the University of Lincoln, he was also the postdoctoral research fellow at the National University of Singapore. He researches urban political ecology, urban environmental governance, and urbanization processes in Southeast Asia with a focus on Malaysia and Singapore. We then have Professor Roger Kai, who joins us from Toronto, Canada today. Roger is professor at the Faculty of Environmental Studies at York University in Toronto, Canada. He researches global suburbanization, urban political ecology, cities and infectious disease, and regional governance. Roger is the author of Suburban Planet and editor of Suburban Constellations, and he was also the inaugural director of the City Institute at York University, and also former co-editor of the International Journal of Urban and Regional Research. Third, we have Dr. Deirdre McKay, who is reader in social geography and environmental politics at Kiel University in the UK. She is also the chair of the Association of Southeast Asian Studies UK. Deirdre's research explores uh, people's place-based experiences of globalization and development. Much of our work has been conducted with people who originate in indigenous villages in the Northern Philippines. Last but not least, we have Dr. Rita Padawangi, who joins us from Singapore. Rita is senior lecturer at Singapore University of Social Sciences, and her research interests include the sociology of architecture, social movement, and participatory urban development. She is also one of the coordinators of the Southeast Asia Neighborhood Network called CNET, 
and has also uh, recently edited the Routledge Handbook of Urbanization in Southeast Asia. So today, each speaker will provide an initial intervention that lasts about 10 minutes um, or a little less. The speaker's interventions will be followed by a, a Q&A session where we are going to invite uh, the members of audience to uh, submit their questions. There's a live Q&A function on Zoom, uh, as many of you will have already used in various Zoom meetings. So please use this function to ask questions to speakers and share your thoughts. For those who are on Twitter, uh, please also use the hashtag for the event, which is LSE COVID-19. Please kindly be reminded that today's, as you can probably see on the Zoom, is, going, is being recorded um, and will be uh, on podcast, uh, made available online, uh, subject to no technical difficulties, of course, uh, uh, after today's event. So I guess without further ado, uh, let us start uh, and welcome the first speaker, uh, Dr. Creighton Connolly. Okay, thank you very much, uh, Hyun, and everyone else at LSE and the Saucy Hawk Center for the invitation to speak here today. So I wanted to talk about addressing some of the relationships between urbanization and infectious disease, which is a topic that Roger Kyle, uh, Harris Ali, and myself have been researching for uh, the last couple of years now. So many of the uh, recent pandemics and major epidemics around the world, from SARS to H1N1, uh, Ebola, Zika, and now COVID-19, uh, have emerged in cities and were largely transmitted uh, in cities. And previous research has shown that uh, dramatic changes in demographic and social conditions, including uh, rapid increase in global transportation networks are responsible for much of the global emerging infectious disease problem um, as diseases can spread before uh, people realize that they are infectious uh, and before health experts know how to deal with them. Um, so diseases like SARS were associated with the rise of globalization as infect uh, interconnected global cities like Toronto and Hong Kong were se severely affected um, but COVID-19 is different as it's really a, a story of peri-urban and rural to urban connections in places that are not often on the global map, so, uh, or at least weren't before. So Wuhan would be a good example of this. And we're now seeing uh, more peri-urban and regional connections between a larger network of cities that makes it much more difficult to contain disease outbreaks. So as is well known now, uh, SARS-CoV-2, or the virus that causes COVID-19, allegedly crossed the animal-human divide at a seafood market in Wuhan, which is a city of about 11 million people. And the coincidence uh, with the emergence of the disease immediately before the Chinese New Year holiday and Wuhan's role as a major uh, travel hub and thoroughfare uh, in central China led to the rapid spread of the disease and in general, uh, cities are inherently connected with their peripheries through flows of people and goods on a daily basis. And people uh, commute into and out of the city each day for work, food, and other essentials that are often produced in peri-urban or rural areas and transported into the city. Uh, and these kinds of uh, connections and movements can't, uh, are, are not stopped during uh, the lockdowns that we've uh, experienced over the past couple of months. Uh, which really allows for uh, the continued uh, spread of the disease. Um, so there are plenty of opportunities for the spread of microbes 
bacteria and different forms of uh, natures through these activities and networks. And recent trends suggest that the emergence of pathogenic uh, zoonoses or diseases that spread from animals to humans um, in rapidly developing and urbanizing regions appears to be, have become a paradigmatic component of urbanization and globalization processes uh, in the 21st century. And this is happening uh, with the expansion of urban areas into previously uninhabited urbanized peripheries, uh, where there is more uh, contact and interaction between humans and other animals uh, and plant species. And uh, the work that Roger and Harris Ali and I have done indicates that uh, rapidly expanding infrastructure networks and urban landscapes can themselves play a role in the emergence of potential outbreaks. Some examples include uh, the deforestation on edges of cities for uh, construction of new settlements and the uh, agro-industrial transformation of hinterlands uh, producing new pathways of uh, emergent infectious disease transmission. Um, so while the global aviation industry has uh, confounded the ability to contain disease outbreaks, and that this has been well established now, uh, we also need to look beyond airports to transportation manufacturing uh, uh, or transnational manufacturing networks, uh, the Chinese uh, finance belt and road infrastructure connecting Asia with Africa and uh, other parts of the world, uh, and global and regional transportation hubs. However, the lack of infrastructures in rapidly urbanizing regions uh, like Southeast Asia can also have severe consequences for the rise of epidemics as the rapid er uh, growth in cities and urban populations is not accompanied by the appropriate development of social and technical infrastructures. So this includes access to clean water supplies, which are of course essential for combating the spread of infectious disease, but are often uh, lacking in rapidly growing informal settlements. And even in wealthy cities like Singapore, the poorest sectors of the population often have an inability to self-isolate due to dense uh, living conditions and are thus at higher risk of contacting, contracting and spreading diseases. So as some of you uh, may recall, Singapore was initially praised for its uh, handling of COVID-19 and uh, managed to avoid imposing uh, lockdown conditions until around mid-April. However, a sharp increase in COVID-19 cases amongst the migrant workers population uh, in Singapore then emerged. So there were nine dormitories uh, housing more than 50,000 men, mostly from Bangladesh, India, and China, uh, and uh, that were declared isolation areas. So uh, the 300,000 workers um, in these dormitories were effectively on lockdown within their own complexes. And this accords uh, with our research as uh, most worker dormitories are located on the peripheries of Singapore um, and you can uh, have about 12 to 20 workers sharing a single room. And they were essentially sort of out of sight of uh, politicians and the general public until this issue exploded and caused Singapore to impose its own uh, one and a half month uh, lockdown as they call the circuit breaker. So this brings me uh, onto another topic of the uh, event today, which is how cities have responded to the COVID pandemic, uh, particularly the role of civil society. So Hong Kong is an interesting case in this regard, as the organization, 
organizational uh, capacity and the civic infrastructures that were built by the recent protest movements uh, played quite a central role in the city's response and ultimately the success in containing the spread of the virus. So one of the uh, former protest groups set up a website to track cases of COVID-19 to monitor hotspots and warn people of places selling fake personal protective equipment, um, and also to report hospital wait times and other important information. And Singapore also had a similar uh, website that was tracking very detailed information about uh, COVID-19 cases in the country and how it, it was spreading. So Hong Kongers uh, also simultaneously adopted a near universal uh, policy of wearing masks on their own, uh, which defied the government's ban on masks, which had been in place uh, due to the protests. And an army of volunteers uh, distributed masks to the poor and elderly in Hong Kong and installed hand sanitizer dispensers in crowded tenement buildings. So when the government at first refused to close the border with mainland China, uh, more than 7,000 medical workers went on strike demanding uh, border closures and PPE for hospital workers. So my final point for today related to the title of the webinar is about how urban design strategies can be reformulated to cope with increasing uh, densities and deepening, inequality, deepening inequalities in the age of global pandemics. So urban density has been uh, widely accused in the popular media for the uh, severity of the current pandemic in places like New York City. But in fact, uh, Asian cities like Hong Kong, Seoul, and Taipei are far denser and have had few, uh, fewer cases of COVID-19 per capita. So this is why uh, Roger and I have argued that uh, governance is actually a more important factor than density in determining this, uh, this severity of outbreaks. And we're less likely to see uh, dramatically different responses in the next uh, pandemic as uh, politicians will have learned important uh, lessons from this one. Um, so some countries that had previous experience of SARS, for example, were uh, better prepared uh, to handle COVID-19 than other countries that didn't have this recent experience. Um, and politics in municipalities between cities and other jurisdictions and between municipalities and civil society actors in local communities will thus be crucial to understanding uh, the role uh, urban health governance uh, can play in increasingly urbanized and globalized society. And there's been a lot of discussion about how cities uh, around the world uh, are going to change after COVID-19, much of which also relates to density and how uh, we get around. So uh, it's of course, uh, hard to speculate at this point, but some uh, urban designers are now arguing for a so-called uh, Goldilocks density, where you have a uh, density that is high enough, uh, but not so high that you have people living in 30-story apartment blocks, uh, which rely on extensive uses of public spaces like elevators. Um, there's also a widely recognized need to plan cities better to support uh, bike and pedestrian uh, infrastructure so that people can get around without relying on crowded public transit networks. Uh, like subways if needed. Uh, and these also need to be constructed evenly rather than just serving wealthier middle-class uh, communities, which has uh, been the case in some cities in recent decades, uh, also referred to as green gentrification. So we're seeing uh, in terms of global and regional transportation uh, that research on past uh, pandemics uh, has shown that travel bans aren't actually that useful in containing diseases because there will inevitably be some uh, spread of the disease before these can be enforced. Uh, 
and at best they can delay the spread of disease. Uh, and in contrast, cities that have uh, worked the quickest and the most diligently to control local transmission through uh, contact tracing methods, identifying sources of infections and quarantine, quarantining uh, affected individuals and so on has been the most effective. So it's also uh, essential to avoid total inaction at earlier stages in the lockdown, um, or uh, earlier stages uh, and total lockdowns, which is, uh, as we're seeing, can also have severe economic effects. Um, so as such, we'll need to move um, towards having much more uh, interdisciplinary research, uh, including uh, between social scientists and urban planners, epidemiologists, in order to effectively uh, respond to future pandemics and to understand their interconnected dimensions, which is something that we're now actually starting to see uh, with COVID-19, with a lot of new research emerging uh, along different lines and between people from different backgrounds. So I will leave it there today uh, and pass it over to Roger. Thank you very much. Well, thank you very much. Uh, now, next, to, uh, next we move to uh, Roger from Toronto. Thank you, uh, Jan, for the invitation uh, to participate uh, and hello to everyone. Thanks also to Creighton for getting us started uh, to uh, what I hope will be, I'm sure will be an exciting discussion. So let me admit right away that I'm not a specialist on Southeast Asia and I will keep my comments largely general. I live in Toronto though, which as Creighton already mentioned, shared the SARS experience in 2003 with Hong Kong and Singapore amongst other cities. Creighton's and my co-author Harris Ali and I spent some time in, in, the, some time in the region when we did research on uh, the relationship of SARS and the global city, which ultimately laid the groundwork for the work we have been doing on cities and disease since. In 2003, we argued uh, that SARS was a disease that revealed the connectivity of the global city's network in an uncanny and deadly way. The disease followed some of the pathways of global air traffic to the nodes, the airports that were considered crucial to that system of concentrated, coordinated finance, capital accumulation, and financialization that those cities produce and represent. The virus, even then, did not stay, of course, in the airport lounges and luxury hotels where the business people, the bankers were staying, or which connected those kinds of economies, but it went to the capillary systems of each globalized city where it arrived, often along the lines traveled by diaspora communities and their families. What was also significant about SARS was the high degree of nosocomial infection, and that is a word that means the infection in hospitals that often became the hotspots for contagion at the time. In Toronto, this was a particularly grave uh, problem, uh, but also in Singapore. Uh, patients were most uh, infectious when they needed most intensive care, a dangerous combination, especially for under-equipped hospital workers. And of course, there are some echoes of that today, that the care workers in particular have been infected. Dozens of people died who were in, in care. But let me turn my attention more to, to COVID than looking back at SARS. So the first point I'd like to make here is that the COVID-19, uh, which is another coronavirus, much like SARS, revealed a different type of relationship with the urban world than SARS did. 
it laid bare that we now all live in an urban society. The diseases we have most likely uh, today are diseases in and of that urban society and not confined anymore to the spaces of global capital and the trajectories of finance. This emerging infectious disease enveloped the globe quickly in a much more deadly manner following the multiple interconnections that make up the urban fabric of the current world system. Barely any spot in that system has been spared. The original hearth of the pandemic, Wuhan, is all but forgotten now that the pandemic has spread so widely through the urban fabric. Remember that in January, February, people used to call this the Wuhan virus. People, you know, shouldn't have done that. But nonetheless, if you look at newspaper articles, every article of COVID linked back to Wuhan. This has pretty much stopped uh, now that it makes no sense anymore. So what we like to add here is also, uh, to a large degree, we can talk about the, a disease of the social, spatial, and institutional periphery of the urban world. And that needs nuance and explanation, but we can first let it stand as a typical characteristic of the COVID-19 spread. It is a disease of the periphery. Our argument is basically that we need to see the spread of emerging infectious diseases, those that are new to humankind in relation to the immense expansion of urban life around the globe. We are now a majority urban planet, but even if we don't technically live in cities, the tentacles of urban society reach to far-flung mining camps, log-in operations, agricultural regions, and the like. And those are necessary operations to make urban life possible elsewhere. So we count it as part of urban society. But of course, large urban centers are mostly affected at first, as they tend to be the mobility hubs of their countries. Wuhan was a mobility hub. Economic travel, tourism, exchange students, but also refugees are concentrated here. The migrant workers that um, Creighton was talking about in Singapore. The large airports are in the main urban no nodes. How and whether the virus spreads through the city once it has arrived, though, can have all kinds of reasons and have all kinds of pathways. If we look at some of the most affected centers from Wuhan to Milan, Madrid, New York, and Montreal, there's no one pattern of transmission that would allow us to make simple connections to urban form and design. But still the phenomenon that my colleagues Murat Güney, Murat Uccellu and I have examined in the book, Massive Suburbanization, may play a role. It is true that this now dominant urban landscape of massive suburbanization with its extensive suburban settlements, many in towers, others in gated communities of houses, provides a generally more expanded set of points of attack for the virus. Often, we find a lower availability of public health infrastructures and medical establishments in those new peripheries. Sometimes, we find the poorest populations in the high-rise neighborhoods at the fringes of the city. They are not well connected to the infrastructural fabric of the urban region and are hence vulnerable to all manner of service deserts from food to transportation to health. And this is what we could call the dialectics of infection. We are getting exposed because we are too connected and then we are getting sick because we are not connected enough. 
But there is no indication that in any of the affected cities, there is a direct relationship of the spread of the virus to density of urban form per se. There is some evidence that in overcrowded and poor areas of cities like New York, Toronto, and Chicago, where there is a con concentration of marginalized, often racialized populations, that the virus has claimed a higher proportion of residents than in the more wealthy and wider neighborhoods in other parts of the city. But there's scant relationship to built form and dense design. The virus has rather claimed most of its victims in institutional environments, care homes, prisons, camps, reserves, some work environments such as meatpacking plants. Where populations have been massed and sequestered under conditions of exploitation, austerity, and underfunding. What I mean to say then is that the virus arrives in the global city but it tends to do most damage to peripheral populations and institutions of a fundamentally urbanized society. This can be peripheral or smaller or poorer cities in the UK. We can think of Wolverhampton, but also of tourist regions, such as the Lake District or other places that are in direct connection with cities elsewhere that are susceptible to contagion from casual visitors. But mainly we need to have our eyes on the institutions that have been peripheralized socially in decades of austerian realism, as Jonathan Davis has called it. This could be racialized neighborhoods, indigenous reserves, or care homes of all kinds. So now let me get to my second point that I want to make, which is that the urban is not a collection of distinct towns and cities, but a set of built social and natural environments that are connected through urban lifestyles and related priorities. People have had their eyes on cruise ships and other mass tourism sites, such as ski resort as earliest points of contagion. Some have argued that this means that COVID-19 was originally a disease of luxury affecting those who can afford to vacation and seek refuge in the prime spaces of elitist fun, and has since become a disease of misery, killing those who are least mobile and most stuck in place, such as elderly people in long-term care homes. This may be a fair reading, and I subscribe to the overall narrative that it was the most mobile and most privileged that were first spreading the virus around the world. But there is another lesson to be learned here, and that is important to our topic. First, we need to state that in most cruise ships and ski areas, not all that glitters its gold. Those can be hideously overcrowded, cheap and miserable places themselves, and let's not forget about the workers that provide services under those conditions. But what is important about those landscapes is that they are extensions of our urban world. They belong to the city. The Austrian geographer Wolfgang Andexlinger speaks of the valleys of Tyrol as uh, island-like tourism landscapes linked to skiing as a mass event and tied into the urban fabric of the region and the continent through massive infrastructures, highways, and entertainment establishments. So in many ways, misery, that of the world of mass cruise ship travel and mass skiing, loved the company of the social, spatial, and institutional peripheries where the virus was spread from here. How am I doing with time? Do I have time for another point? Uh, yeah, you do, about a minute or two. Yeah. So the third point I'd like to highlight is that in this urban world, local and regional jurisdictions remain important, perhaps more than ever, as bounded forms of territorial decision-making and governance areas that are also connected to other such areas, regardless of their location in a particular nation-state. 
This is a crucial point in effective pandemic preparedness, response, and now reopening as we are currently witnessing. Pathogens are not naturally contained by political borders. The borders are only as strong of an obstacle for the spread of disease as the health governance institutions and practices that govern the particular territory where it takes hold. In an urban world, nation states have still shown to have a hard grip on global health governance. Realist international diplomacy and the role of the United Nations organizations, especially the World Health Organization, to deal only or mostly with national governments is behind this. That makes sense to some degree as the sovereignty of nation states still reigns supreme at the international scale. But the role of cities has clearly grown nonetheless. This is true inside countries, as we could see from the self-confident politics of mayors in the United States, for example, vis-a-vis -vis the federal government that had largely abdicated its responsibility throughout much of the pandemic. And it's true globally as organizations such as the C40 organization of mayors have rallied to join forces in their fight against the impact of pandemic on their cities. Two areas will lead our contention here. First, uh, can civil society and grassroots initiatives be made a stronger part of municipal governance strategies? And second, will municipalities be supported by higher level governments when they inevitably fall into a deep fiscal hole after the crisis is over. Both questions are important in Canada where I live, but I assume also elsewhere. So we shall see how municipalities will fare. There are some good initiatives underway. Renters have been protected in many cities. Low wage service workers have seen a boost and recognition of their dangerous work. But we also have a long way to go until we can say that subnational governments have made a real difference. Much will depend on whether specific urban social movements can turn on the heat on their municipal and regional governments. Again, I think housing will be a battleground as the financialized real estate industry will have to be forced to change its evil ways that sees turning a profit as more important than providing affordable housing as an accessible use value to the majority. And I could say more about you know, social movements at this point, but I'll leave that perhaps for later and the discussion, and I, 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 I end it here. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Uh, now uh, we move to Deirdre. Deirdre, it's your turn now. Thanks, Yun. And thank you, Creighton and Roger. I'm going to pick up on some of the points that you've made about flows and density and focus actually on food supply. Um, and I'm going to look at the periphery in quite an empirical way. I work on the Philippines and I'm an ethnographer and obviously not being Southeast Asian or in Southeast Asia, I really see my intervention here as being intended to amplify the great work that is going on in the region and particularly in the Philippines. So I, I want to ask Roger's point about could governments support and then think about should and what what is gained and lost. But I'm going to start actually with uh, some slides and, uh, and give you a, a sense of the um, uh, things that are, are happening uh, where I'm working. So the first point I want to make is one about spatiotemporal patterns. And in the Philippines, where we have urban centers that are currently the centers of infection, 
we, we need to realize that that actually applies to all nucleated settlements. So we're actually seeing a protracted movement of the pandemic through the hinterlands that is supporting cities. And here, people who live in non-nucleated settlements have a much easier time of social distancing. So people have gone out there, known what they're looking at, and distanced. But we don't always make visible the, the way people from those spaces flow in and out of cities, along with goods, skills, and technologies. So we could have hotspots in the hinterlands for quite a long time that could have an impact on food supplies and labor for cities. And as an example, here's my friend Amante. Um, he works with conservation NGO and he's returned to his family farm where he planted watermelons for the urban market. So this was sort of a therapeutic crop as a way of extending his furlough payment. But the point here is that he's someone we call a farmer, but he's part-time, he's mobile, he's got a very diversified set of income sources, and he's living in this non-nucleated settlement pattern with his extended family, and um, he has you know, responded to the pandemic by improvising his own um, PPE with uh, used clothing. So this is how he, he's out there um, protecting himself. And again, thinking further about rural to urban flows, I have a, a friend I call Labanet, and she's actually from the book I've written on Filipinos in London called Archipelago of Care. She's back in the Philippines now. The first thing she did was organize donations of unsold vegetables as aid packages for students who were stranded in Baguio City, one of the Philippines' secondary cities. And she's now volunteering with local government in her rural area to help these stranded students move back from the city to their rural homes. She is herself a rural person, but she migrated to London and she now owns a house in Baguio. And she moved most of her activities back to the rural when it was clear that the country was going to go into the extended community quarantine or lockdown. Um, she's got a special travel pass now as a volunteer. She's regularly tested and, and she's out there providing aid. And two important points here. We're seeing some counter urbanization. So this is exacerbating the kinds of equalities that Creighton and Roger outlined where we have more middle-class people able to move to the margins, afford decent Wi-Fi, and expand digital working, but they also have access to garden plots and green spaces to sustain themselves and their family. We are also seeing here citizen aid and working in particular channels, and we have the hinterlands coming to the aid of citizens that are stranded in cities through flows of goods and accepting unemployed laborers, but there's very complex brokerage um, relationship uh, emerging here. And the capital that has been sustaining these new systems of provisioning or support may originate from remittances from the global north. So in Labanet's effect, you know, case, this is because she did all this 11 years of work in London and she saved up the capital to invest in properties, renovate them, buy transport, operate um, businesses, employ people. And the potential here is for a cascade effect where we see a coming recession that's going to hollow out what we currently think is very robust citizen aid or mutual aid or volunteering. And 
here we see that her ability to volunteer and to mobilize donations from her social networks and work through those networks digitally is really predicated on the capital that she put together in London. So there's a particularity of these channels. It doesn't mean we can generalize about them or that they're necessarily sustainable or replicable. Um, so there you have Labanet and some of the students, uh, students going home, and then you have a picture of the garden that she's planted back in the rural area. Finally, I, I want to think about social enterprise uh, because we're also seeing a lot of volunteering there. And this is an example from a social enterprise called Agrea. Uh, they've started what they call the Move Food Initiative. And this is a scheme that's designed to deliver groceries from farmers to consumers. Now, um, Agrea was working as an enterprise to end rural poverty by helping farmers to move from subsistence to small-scale commercial farming. When the lockdown happened in the Philippines, farmers found their routes to market cut off and they started this move food initiative to rescue food that would have been dumped in rural areas and deliver it to urban consumers. My friend Seth uh, Karandang is volunteering with the, the Agrea uh, food movers. And the interesting thing is Agrea is a recognized social enterprise. They're a much more formalized version of what Labanet was doing very informally. So here we, we have something that's you know, attracted attention and a profile from the World Economic Forum and is part of a, a much more um, regulated and formalized enterprise. But in Labanet's case, we have a, a very informal community network kind of immediate donation um, and distribution response. So the points I want to make here are ones really about the civil society response, because what we're talking about when we talk about civil society actually covers many different kinds of initiatives. We might be talking about mutual aid. I talk about citizen aid. People are talking about NGOs. Um, there are definitely government organized NGOs that are out there and involved. And this is a pretty messy area where we could benefit from more distinction and nuance. So looking at my food system, civil society responses to COVID-19 in the Philippines, and just a very small sample that I've constructed through Facebook posts from people that I know, so this is not particularly um, well-scoped research, you can see that this is operating at different scales. There's individual and household work going on that's, you know, it's short-term, it may not last, but it's an important part of the first um, response to lockdown not necessarily about the wider economic response. We have these citizen aid initiatives that are short-term and may scale up, may persist, may not. They may be subject to various kinds of regulation if they are you know, going to be more formalized. And then we have these social enterprises that are potentially, you know, they're new, but they can be much more durable and cut out some of the middlemen and create new foodscapes nationally that are going to sustain urban um, dwellers, but also sustain agriculture in the, the countryside. So we're, we're thinking here about things that are actually very different. They've got different networks in terms of people, in terms of their scope, but also I think very importantly in terms of their state recognition and their legality or regulation. And 
in the Philippines in particular, we've just had the introduction of a new um, drafting of anti-terror legislation, which is came out at the end of last week. And it specifically will prevent um, donations of support to aid efforts that are not approved by the government. And people in this space of citizen aid are actually quite concerned that, you know, this is going to be used to make sure that their efforts are managed and run through and distributed by the government. They're concerned about what that actually might make um, in terms of, it, of its effects on how they work with communities and immediate needs. So just to say that I'm from the Association of Southeast Asian Studies UK and there are a whole host of us on our Facebook page who are thinking through some, some of these and related issues and sharing work if you'd like to stop by. So I hope there I've outlined how we move from some of these broader scale concerns into the lives of the individual people who are enacting this because Amante and Labanet and Seth are out there as responders volunteering. They may not have the um, economic wherewithal or the social support, the family situation to keep their initiatives going, but they've been a very, very important part of that initial response. And then we need to think with them and with local governments, um, with diasporic communities who are donating, um, with aid operations that are on the ground, what needs to be sustained and what within these um, new patterns and new flows is really gonna be effective going forward. And they've all shared some great ideas on that that are very particular with where, you know, to where they're operating, but with, uh, with me, and I'm looking forward to, to following this up as, as further research. And I'm really excited to hear what Rita, who works on this in the urban is going to say next. So thank you. Well, thank you very much again. Um, Last but not least, uh, uh, we move to Rita then. Uh, and uh, for those of you uh, who are uh, joining us, please use the chat window again, uh, the Q&A, the, the function, uh, to ask questions as we are going to start the Q&A session right after Rita's uh, intervention. So Rita, uh, you can... Uh, thank you, Hian. Uh, and uh, thank you also to uh, Crichton, uh, Roger, and uh, Deidre. You know, I think uh, the three of you made my, my task here much easier, you know, because uh, you've been uh, covering uh, uh, a lot of uh, ground that, uh, that I feel is, um, you know, is, is very much connected to what I'm going to uh, bring up here. I mean, I'm, I'm just going to show uh, a series of nice photos uh, uh, as, you know, as a collection of what I've observed over the past few months uh, of what is going on. And uh, also like Didra, I want to um, actually just follow up on, uh, on, on what Didra has shared, uh, which basically focuses more on uh, the civil society and the collective action that has emerged uh, during uh, this COVID-19 pandemic, particularly in Southeast Asia. So these are just uh, reflection points uh, that I've collected. Uh, I, you know, uh, like Deidre, this is not yet a very structured research. So um, I would welcome any uh, comments or suggestions or, you know, just uh, uh, discuss uh, more about uh, possibilities in the future. So, 
Um, so here, uh, like uh, Roger has said, actually, uh, the there are problems, right, uh, when we rely uh, so much on the national governments here. A lot of national governments actually don't do very well. Um, and when we look into uh, Southeast Asia um, uh, in this pandemic, of course, there's some mix of uh, things that, that are going on. There are some governments that uh, do better than others. Um, but uh, throughout um, my previous research, particularly from the Southeast Asia Neighborhoods Network that Hian has mentioned, we do find that, you know, probably this is now sounds quite promising that actually there are uh, limitations on uh, just looking at what the national governments are doing, right, in, in terms of um, understanding urbanization and crisis. And like, uh, like Roger has said that um, actually uh, cities um, may uh, deserve uh, more attention now in this, uh, in this situation, but uh, it just so happens also in Southeast Asia, um, most places actually um, there are limitations of uh, state control, uh, especially when we look into the citizens' everyday experiences. I mean, uh, a lot of uh, points have been raised about you know the incapacity of the government in planning cities uh, and in you know in master planning, the differences, uh, the mismatch between master plans and realities on the ground. Uh, it used to be framed as something that is sort of like bad governance or something like that. But uh, it, uh, in this case, I would like to see it actually as an opening window for us to, to look into possibilities uh, from Southeast Asia. Um, and here, uh, I would like to also point out that actually when we look into the civil society in Southeast Asia, I mean, uh, yes, uh, Deidre, you're right. Actually, there's a whole slew of uh, organizations, groups, uh, institutions when we talk about civil society. But in this mix, uh, I would also say that um, in, in, in Southeast Asia, we've, uh, we've seen uh, that um, civil society groups in Southeast Asia uh, have evolved so much that uh, a lot of them have uh, transcended uh, beyond national boundaries even. Uh, this is an example of uh, the Community Architects Network um, in recent experience of disasters, you know, like typhoons in the Philippines or earthquakes in Indonesia, there have been obvious roles of civil society groups and networks actually to collaborate to deliver aid and also empowerment programs in disaster hit areas. Uh, and uh, they don't, uh, they may not need to engage with the national government in doing this. Uh, and, uh, but when we look into COVID-19, however, um, it's actually the first pandemic in this sort of like era of this increasingly interconnected networks. So I would like to, uh, you know, actually these questions are for myself too, but uh, probably, you know, uh, I would like to also post this to everyone, you know, how have actually civil society groups respond to this pandemic? And Deidre has brought up a lot of very interesting examples from, uh, from Northern Philippines. Uh, how do they maintain empowerment and autonomy in the midst of more stringent state-driven measures? So we've seen, you know, curfews, uh, limitations, social distancing, you know, some of these actually are counterintuitive to all these uh, networks, right? What are, their, uh, what are these limitations of civil society actions? Like, uh, what can we learn from Southeast Asia civil societies in understanding resilience? Uh, now, I would like to start actually with these um, cartoons, you know, when we look into citizens. So I want to focus more on citizens' collective actions here uh, so that we, uh, we sort of like um, narrow down what, we are, uh, what I'm going to discuss about civil society. So I want to focus more about uh, the activation of these networks and also how it affects 
affects the flows of goods and information. Um, so this uh, cartoon is actually an illustration. This is from Indonesia, uh, and it quickly came out, you know. Uh, and uh, the the top part is actually when the government uh, uh, doesn't know what to do during this pandemic, you know. So uh, citizens should help each other. Uh, plant your own food, run the food bank, run the soup kitchen, help of each other. Uh, but interestingly, there's also this uh, bottom part say that, and when the government becomes more anti-critic and criminalize the critic, it is time to keep more critical solidarity, care of your comrades, and also support the union. So um, this sort of like uh, uh, sort of like encapsulate the two sides uh, while uh, helping each other, but also uh, uh, the other side is actually pushing for uh, keep pushing for greater change. Yeah. So. Um, these are just a series of my observations here, and uh, I'm, I'm trying to structure uh, the the uh, uh, the empirical uh, uh, cases here. But um, th this is by no means cast in stone, all right. So I want to start with my first observation, actually, um, to uh, to look into uh, what is happening on the ground. So. Uh, what are the actions on the ground to understand the emerging patterns here that, that appear um, primarily in urban areas, but later on we'll see the connection with the rural, uh, how they uh, redefine the connection between the urban and the rural. So, um, um, so like I said before, in Southeast Asia, the uh, state control, maybe with the exception of Singapore probably, um, has always been limited in governing everyday lives. So uh, various neighborhoods, so this is uh, the picture on the right, it's actually a, uh, an example from a neighborhood in North Jakarta, Kampung Aquarium, it's actually a, an urban poor neighborhood. So they actually started uh, to impose uh, neighborhood movement restrictions as early as 9 March, before the city even imposed its own official restrictions. Yeah. So this portal uh, and uh, is built uh, collectively by the residents um, and they assign shifts among themselves to guard the checkpoint. Yeah. Uh, so there have been plenty other examples across cities and villages from collective guarding uh, movement restrictions to disinfecting public uh, public spaces in the neighborhood, like the uh, photo you see uh, on the left. Yeah? So uh, those are uh, disinfecting their own neighborhoods. Um, and another example of the collective action on the ground is actually the um, the growing movement of uh, producing your own food, right? So, um, so this particular urban poor community is also uh, sort of like uh, uh, enhancing their initiatives to grow edible plants uh, individually uh, per household, but we've also seen collective uh, to uh, to to have uh, these uh, urban farms. So this is an example from Samarang, uh, where uh, citizens actually start to uh, a group to cultivate on unused land uh, to challenge existing food supply system. So. Um, so when I, I had a discussion the other day with another group, uh, we just named ourselves Cultural Resilience in Asia, um, we realized that actually the pandemic has become a reminder about the unsustainability of the current food supply chain to urbanizing areas. So there are lots of new initiatives, maybe not so new, but this is becoming a catalyst for these initiatives to grow. So these are the actions on the ground. Um, my second... Uh, uh, observation is actually the activation of the networks, right? Uh, the citizens for citizens uh, networks. Um, so, um, so many are operating peer to peer uh, uh, to channel resources from one point to another. So uh, like 
the examples that Deidre has brought up, um, there are also uh, initiatives to distribute food uh, in urban areas. The, the, the one on the left is actually the, the distribution of rice boxes in Bandung, Indonesia. Um, and also uh, the, the one on the right is actually the initiative from the punk uh, uh, groups in Bali uh, to, to have free vegetables. Uh, so these are, uh, these are actually existing networks, right? And they don't usually uh, go into this distribution of food, but they are activated in this uh, in this pandemic time. So, um, in various places in Southeast Asia, particularly where governments don't intervene and uh, corporations' activities actually slowed down during this pandemic, the existing networks channel uh, um, they 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 also channel food resources from countrysides. So the center image is an example of crowdfunding. Uh, thank you to uh, Natalie from the Philippines, Natalie Dagmang, who provide this example. Um, um, and uh, uh, it's, it's an online fundraising activity to, um, to, to raise funds by selling arts online. Uh, the examples on the, uh, on the left and the right are from Indonesia. Uh, they are also crowdfunding initiatives. The one on the right actually is crowdfunding to purchase rice from farmers uh, who are threatened by cement factory uh, um, and, 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 and use the money to buy rice from them to channel to urban areas. So I guess from these initiatives, um, we see that the state's incapacity is actually further highlighted. Uh, but it is also fair to question the sustainability of these initiatives, right? So uh, these are words from Natalie again, one of the students we work with with CNET in Manila. So she said that it feels frustrating knowing that what we were doing was still inefficient and unsustainable. The government has all the resources, communication channels, control over transportation, and the personnel for checkpoints and local units. They are the ones mandated by virtue of our votes and taxes to provide for our needs during calamities such as this. But where are they now? So uh, it, it is important for these actions to evolve uh, into a structured societal alternative, right? So this brings me to my third and last uh, uh, point of observation is actually how the public spheres uh, transform or evolve during this time. So. Uh, the appropriation of technology, right? Uh, I think uh, this is not so much limited to the middle class anymore, although the rich is still questionable how unequal they are. Of course, there are problems of existing inequalities, um, but uh, we also see the intensification of discussions on cyberspaces. Yeah? So uh, the this example on the right is actually a Zoom meeting uh, from the Kampung Aquarium, the urban poor community in Jakarta, with a representative from the Ministry uh, of, uh, of Land, uh, of Special Planning in Indonesia. So uh, these kinds of uh, meetings actually took place during this pandemic, uh, and it opens possibilities for, for these kinds of meetings to emerge. Where this will take them, we don't know yet, uh, but this hasn't happened uh, uh, so quickly before. Yeah. So. Um, there are also other examples. Uh, we, we've also seen examples of online protest. Uh, this is a, an example from the Philippines about the protest of the ABS-CBN shutdown in early May. Uh, and there's this online protest, the Black Pri uh, Friday protest. Yeah? So um, we've seen this emerging. Again, where this will take us, I, I, I can't 
tell. You know, I, I don't want to be overly optimistic about this, but I think this is worthwhile to study further. So I think, you know, there are discussions that are going on on environmental sustainability, critiques on urbanization as usual, agrarian reform, democracy and spatial justice. They are taking place in this uh, uh, in this era, you know, uh, with this intensification of the discussions on cyberspaces. This is another example from Indonesia. Uh, we've just finished uh, a Sidang Rakyat, which means that uh, it's the trial by the people. Uh, it's a critique uh, by uh, bringing together uh, people from all over Indonesia on Zoom uh, to actually uh, testify and give evidence of the uh, of the negative impacts of the new law that is passed on mining, um, and so this has uh, this doesn't have to deal with issues of pandemic per se, but the pandemic actually intensifies again the cyberspace use for this. Yeah? Uh, last but not least, this is again going back to the uh, collective farming in Samarang. Um, it's not just uh, you know, I think community gardening has happened a lot of times, you know, using uh, unused land in the city uh, to plant edible plants and, 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 and all those things. Uh, I think the, the, the interesting aspect of this is actually, in addition to farming, uh, there's also an ideological discussion that's going on um, in the trainings, right? So everybody has to go uh, training for planting and farming certain kinds of plants and all that. But also the discussion is not just about training uh, to plant, but it's also about um, you know, what actually brings us to this crisis. Um, what is the problem with our cities? Uh, so in, in addition to basic techniques of farming and food processing, they talk about cooperatives as, a, as an economic model. They talk about social movements for agrarian reform. They talk about food politics. And they also talk about uh, capitalism. Uh, criticizing capitalist-driven urban developments. And again, these are uh, inseparable from in, uh, existing networks, but uh, these are intensifying uh, as we speak right now. So this is not on Zoom, so this is on land, um, but this, uh, these initiatives are growing. All right, so, uh, so, so this brings me to my, just to summarize, you know, I don't think anything is conclusive from this presentation, uh, but I I would like to uh, invite all of us to rethink our societies uh, in this urbanizing world, uh, not just post-COVID-19, but probably with this COVID-19, right? Uh, what, will, what will happen to collective actions? Uh, what will happen to civil societies? And what are the alternatives that are possible, right? So what can we learn about this? And I think um, uh, how would collective action in civil societies reshape relationships with the state and corporations to push for alternatives. So I think it will be really be dependent upon how these networks are able to continue operating and thriving, uh, which will be reflective of their resilience. All right, so uh, that's all I have. Thank you. Well, thank you very much again. Uh, and main thanks to all the speakers for the initial interventions. Very insightful and a lot uh, of things to, uh, uh, to kind of think about. So I, I wouldn't, I, I'm not trying to summarize everything here. Um, but, but only to uh, perhaps point out some of the keywords. So we we had we have uh, talks that touch upon the issues of density, physical and social infrastructures. The state uh, becomes one of the key uh, areas of uh, for the, uh, food for thought. Um, I remember and uh, Roger uh, discussing the dialectics of this uh, infection, where 
degrade the connectivity, increasing the chance of infection, um, and also uh, the less connectivity, decreasing the chance of survival once the infection spreads. Uh, it talks about the state uh, comes back again and again, uh, also in relation to civil society. The state, uh, in a sense, uh, fragmented you know, from the national level to local state level, and how much the municipal governments, which are uh, appearing to be very prominent in our uh, effort to address the pandemic, uh, also are very much prone to uh, fiscal crisis, um, and they are very much in need of you know, support from the state you know, at uh, um, upper scale. Uh, this also brings back the question of how much the state power uh, is to be enhanced, and, in and also in relation to the power of the civil society. I won't go uh, further into this. Uh, we have some questions, and, and it's, uh, the questions are coming from, you know, uh, from many different places, from London, Berlin, uh, also from, uh, from the Philippines, and so on. So we have, uh, I'm trying to kind of group the questions together. Uh, there are distinctively two areas of further thought. So let me start with some of the questions, especially uh, starting with the question from Clarissa, uh, who is from the Philippines. Um, and this is, this is a question uh, uh, for Deirdre, but I guess you know, uh, other speakers can also respond to this as well uh, in relation to what they uh, have covered. So here, the thanks for sharing, uh, a question from Clarissa saying, uh, thanks for sharing your insights about the Philippines. The, uh, the government in the Philippines has also a program called Valit uh, Provincia, uh, where migrant workers in urban centers like Metro Manila are encouraged to go back to their home provinces to the uh, to decongest the cities in response to COVID-19. So how do you think about this policy and whether this policy would affect the urban rural dynamics in the Philippines? And I guess this is something uh, that can also be uh, uh, related to uh, many topics that other speakers have discussed as well. So perhaps it would be nice to hear from other speakers as well about this you know, urban rural dynamics when the relationship between the urban and the rural when it comes to the sharing of resources and the mobility of workers and commodities uh, get disrupted by the pandemic. Uh, there's another question uh, in, in, uh, that can be uh, uh, more related to this issue. Um, Antonio Grasso from London uh, uh, asking, considering the new way people are working because of COVID-19, especially working from home, um, what would this shift to working from home uh, produce or cause? Uh, especially the chain reaction when it comes to uh, various initiatives that are being made, such as less spending on high street, um, uh, imp imp uh, having an impact on workers who are working in the business, and, and subsequent consequently uh, a decrease in people working in such stores and the businesses and uh, investing less in real estate uh, lease and, and so on and so forth. So a lot of the interventions that are being made by the government will have this knock-on effect on others. So when it comes to thinking about the post-COVID-19, uh, the future of the urbanizing world, uh, many of the kind of initiatives that you are discussing, uh, uh, the speakers were discussing, you know, uh, how do these kind of play out uh, in terms of knock-on effect at local, national, and transnational level? So I guess we'll start with these two questions first. Uh, can I ask uh, speakers to uh, respond rather concisely that given I'm aware of the time, and there are uh, another set of questions we want to cover. So, of course, we start with you, Dreamer. Sure. I think the Balik Provincia uh, program is useful. I don't think it has sort of um, 
very accessible universal coverage in the Philippines. And this is something that communities have actually started on their own. I think it's very much for individuals and their households and employers to decide who is stranded and can be reabsorbed into the rural labor force. When I was looking at those students who were going home, their families were requiring them to go out and plant and they couldn't afford to ship food to the city to feed them there. So they wanted them back to put their labor into rice and vegetables so they would have food security. Not everybody can be reabsorbed into the rural labor force, depending what's going on with uh, the balance between subsistence and commercial farming. And I think we've seen that in, say, Jonathan Riggs' uh, research on the 1997 um, monetary crisis in Indonesia. So um, this becomes, you know, it can't actually be a blanket policy. We also need jobs for people in cities. And then you're layering together international migrants with internal migrants, and there are really complex um, dynamics there as well. But the interesting thing that I was finding was where we might assume the digital divide is, a, is an urban thing and rural people are outside the digital. In fact, a lot of rural areas now have access to pretty good broadband and great mobile phone signal, and people are actually able to coordinate um, relief activities and businesses and networks from there. So there's some things I didn't mention, which I think are really, you know, following what Rita has said, I've seen a whole bunch of small craft producers come online through Hobby uh, with Philippine Textile Council on Facebook, and they're now selling directly to the, the national market and internationally through a digital platform. So I think we are potentially going to see a hollowing out of um, central business and shopping areas and more digital models right across Southeast Asia. I think the regulatory question and the status of these different initiatives and organizations and how they're going to be formalized and whether that's beneficial for them, I think that's all to play for. Okay. Um, anyone else would like to contribute? Um, well, I could just offer a view from the north, um, very much different from what Deirdre and uh, Rita were talking about. And it's something to keep in mind, given that we're now already talking about the possibility that this disease is very much linked to seasonality and it will come back in our northern winter, fall in the winter. And that's something to think about when we talk about urban-rural relationships. So I just want to offer a couple of examples where in Canada and also in the United States, also in Britain, other places, uh, there has been a debate on how people in the city have left the city to go to their country homes, vacation homes. And this is a tradition, there's a cultural thing here in Canada to some degree for the settler, uh, uh, white settler culture. There is a, uh, a large part of sort of middle classes, also working classes, have cabins or, uh, or cottages in, in the countryside. And as soon as it became somewhat warmer, uh, people decamped to those summer homes and then the villages and uh, towns in those rural areas that are also tourist areas and are reliant on tourist income uh, uh, often pleaded with those seasonal cottages to say, stay in the city. We, in our hospital, which is a small hospital, we only have one ICU unit and uh, intensive care unit. We don't want you here. Go away. We also don't want you in our supermarkets. 
we like you to spend money here normally, but now stay away. So there is this conflict, which, uh, you know, is clearly something that is on, on, you know, is on the agenda and needs to be reconciled. And the government in our province of Ontario uh, is a very conservative government and sort of aligned with many of those rural interests, uh, and they wouldn't want to offend uh, people. So the premier of the province who has a cottage up north was criticized for going there to check whether the water pipes had frozen in the winter. And he was criticized in the media for having left the city and driven to the north. So this is a, a range of conflict between the city and the countryside. The other one is agriculture. We have a very short growing season in, in the part of Canada where I live. It's uh, in central Ontario, uh, southern Ontario. In, in that place, uh, a lot of the crops that are being um, harvested are connected to migrant labor. So uh, migrant labor from other parts of the Americas, uh, from the Caribbean, but also from Mexico and, and Latin America are brought in to, uh, to work in the summer months to Canada. That, of course, uh, wasn't possible at first because uh, nobody was allowed to come in to Canada without a quarantine. Uh, so there had to be special um, laws being passed uh, and uh, that, uh, you know, people were allowed to come in as migrant workers. And that is another contested area. And, you know, I, we don't have an agriculture here, which is easily, you can't grow four seasons like in many parts of the, the South. Uh, so for us, this is a very short seasonal thing. If we don't, uh, you know, this, th those crops are not harvested in the next three or four months in our very short summer. Uh, you know, there is no food sustainability uh, in this part of the world. And we're completely dependent on California and Mexico and Chile and those parts of the southern hemisphere that we get our food from. So that is, means that the urban-rural relationship, again, is not a local relationship. It is a relationship which is very much international, global, and it's part of that global uh, urban world that I was talking about in the beginning. Well, if I may, uh, uh, there's another uh, related question actually uh, from the audience, member of audience, uh, uh, Annette Polner, Polner uh, from London and Berlin, uh, asking, uh, how can freedom of movement for ordinary citizens be maintained in pandemics, um, especially when if, uh, the movement itself uh, has different imp implications for you know, people of different status, so some uh, more privileged people having a you know, much better chance of you know, maintaining this freedom, whereas much more, uh, much less privileged than the people or people in uh, deprivation having less and a chance of maintaining this freedom. So I would, I, I would imagine this freedom itself is not necessarily uh, confined to freedom of movement within cities, but also across borders of, the, of various types. So just wondering, in a, a, a brief, perhaps concise in a, uh, intervention uh, or response to this question, perhaps Roger and maybe a few others if you want to. Well, I think that some of the story writes itself. I mean, you know, basically in the question, there's the answer. Those people who have the means of getting around normally also now have the means to get around. Uh, one of the things that is, uh, is so uh, crucial now in how we also reimagine the opening of societies is that uh, while we have been spending a lot of time talking about the movement of automobiles as a privileged movement uh, that people who have a car can get us outside of the city, of course, we now know that this has died down. But what is more, more uh, problematic in a city like Toronto, where now, as they said on the radio just this morning, 
the, the use of the Toronto public transit system is down by 80%. So only 10 to 20% of the normal use is currently in place. So they're thinking about how that can be um, uh, brought up once the reopening happens, because it is the, the freedom of moving around the city should be one that is equal to all people in the world, in, in, in a particular urban environment. And that has shown now to be quite different. Those who have the critical jobs, who had to work through the pandemic, through the lockdown, had to use public transit or had to find alternative ways of getting around. And the others who had, uh, you know, the ability to work from home like we do now, uh, they were not dependent on moving around, but they also tend to be the most mobile. They probably will be the first one to be back on an, at an airport to fly uh, to do research somewhere, to do uh, other things, uh, any kinds of other work uh, elsewhere. So this is not an easy story. It's not a black and white story that can easily be, uh, you know, told. It's one with a lot of nuance and one which we which will uh, reveal a lot of contradictions. Okay. Um, perhaps in the interest of time, let me just kind of in a, uh, move on to another question, actually, here. This is probably for uh, Momo, uh, for Rita. Byron uh, Amartina from Singapore uh, saying, uh, your work reminds me a lot about the importance of considering actor and social networks in urban areas. Uh, do you think the bottom-up community networks will continue post-COVID or will they disappear uh, with the pandemic? So I guess it's a question about how much the, the various initiatives to fight COVID and to uh, maintain the survival of you know, many de deprived communities how much this initiative will actually contribute to producing a better society in the future or whether this is going to be a one-off. Uh, um, so perhaps Rita, uh, would you have anything to say to this question? Yeah, I, I, I would say actually th these networks uh, uh, actually have existed even before COVID-19. Uh, they've existed uh, for many years uh, and they are just being intensified through the cyberspace during COVID-19 because of the movement restrictions, a lot of these uh, activists are also quite mobile. And some of these urban poor in Jakarta, for example, they've visited others in Myanmar, in Cambodia, and learned from each other. They cannot do that physically now, uh, but I, uh, what I'm observing is that uh, these connections, it's like, you know, like us researchers uh, in the universities, now we are doing Zoom for our conferences. They're also using Zoom for, for their meetings um, and, and discussions. Um, and so I would say that uh, I can see that, I can confidently say that they, uh, they are likely to survive the pandemic, right? Um, it's just the question will be, uh, what will be the shape of these networks after the pandemic? Uh, Will they intensify further? Will they be able to uh, make more structural changes uh, with taking this uh, pandemic as sort of like an opening or a catalyst for change? Now, uh, I would also like to tie this back to this issue of the rural-urban connections, you know, because a lot of this is actually being thought of uh, when we think about our food supply chain, right? Because no, no city is uh, is self-sustaining. Uh, cities are always relying on their hinterlands uh, for at, uh, for mostly their food supplies. And I think um, uh, with this pandemic, I think uh, in many places in Southeast Asia they have different reactions. Like in the Philippines, there's this uh, balik uh, 
sort of like program to um, to to return to uh, countryside. In Indonesia, it's actually the other way around. There, the movement restrictions actually keep they want to keep people in the city so that they don't spread uh, the virus to the rural areas. Um, but there are openings for those that are more privileged. So recently, there are more openings for people to travel. But of course, we know who can get those permissions, who can get those letters to travel. Those are the more privileged ones. So there are a mix uh, of, of, of these. Um, but I guess uh, in terms of the, 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 the networks, it's, uh, it's sort of like expanding. I think there's more connections between rural and urban right now. It has been there before. But I think this, uh, this restriction on physical movements actually um, make the spaces call us together somehow. Uh, so uh, again, let's see how this actually will pan out structurally. I think you know this movement restrictions or balik kampung or or whatever this is, um, you know, returning labor to the countryside. Again, uh, this is also another question: when, if we can overcome this pandemic, will they actually come back to the cities, right? Because as much as I know, uh, economically is still very much focusing on the cities. So we, we haven't really seen this uh, structural change in terms of how we structure the, the urban economy and, uh, and the urban development. So once this virus is gone, probably, you know, then, I don't know, business as usual, and then you will see waves of migration back to cities. I hope not. I mean, I, I'm, I'm hoping that we can see some alternatives, but again, uh, I think it's worthwhile to uh, to study further. Okay, well, thank you very much again. Uh, there are a few questions about uh, probably you know, the role of the state and their relationship with the civil society, perhaps which I guess with, uh, will be questions that can be answered by all speakers. And perhaps we can start with uh, Creighton uh, um, in response to these questions and move uh, to other speakers. So one of the questions uh, coming from uh, Doyoung, or who is a research officer at the LSE in London, um, is asking, COVID-19 is a clear opportunity to think about the role of the state. While many Southeast Asian states have been often uh, uh, dubbed as authoritarian regimes, while Western ones uh, haven't, to what extent do you think uh, this is an opportunity to reconceptualize the state in a way to justify the regimes in Southeast Asia, considering their responses to COVID-19. So that's one question from Doyoung. Uh, another interesting question uh, can be um, is possibly, uh, uh, I think uh, th there are so many questions so I have to kind of scroll down up and, <laughs> um, but let's start with this question and then uh, I'll throw in a, a couple more uh, uh, which are related uh, to this one here. So, uh, I can start with that one. Yeah. Uh, it's It's been interesting to follow uh, how this pandemic has uh, developed, or responses to the pandemic have developed uh, from, you know, late January to uh, till now. I remember uh, Roger and Harris Ali and I being interviewed for a podcast in middle of March. And at that time, it was really only the... Um, Asian countries that had imposed lockdowns at that point and uh, kind of the discussion was, oh, well, you know, how do we um, respond to 
pandemics like this without imposing uh, lockdown, which would be totally inconceivable in countries in the West, in Europe, where which are more democratic, and there would be um, you know more assertion of uh, individual civil uh, liberties uh, that would prevent um, these kind of rules being imposed. But sure enough, within a week or two, uh, you saw the UK and um, later on the US and other uh, countries starting to do that. Um, and with, uh, but not without protests, as we've seen in some places as well, uh, notably in the United States. Um, so, uh, yeah, although uh, you do have authoritarian, um, quote unquote, authoritarian governments like uh, Singapore, which initially managed it well, but eventually, you know, they now have amongst the most cases and uh, probably the most cases in Southeast Asia in terms of uh, population size. So, um, you know, having an authoritarian government or not uh, isn't necessarily prescriptive about how a country is going to respond uh, to a pandemic and uh, certainly doesn't indicate um, how effective the, the strategies that they employ will be. Okay, I've got three more questions. In the interest of time, we have about seven minutes before the end of the session today. Uh, and these three questions are more or less uh, related with each other uh, regarding the relationship between uh, the state and civil society and the kind of actions to be taken. So let me kind of you know, uh, present these three questions to all the speakers. And uh, we'll start with, you know, uh, um, uh, perhaps we, uh, from uh, Deirdre, uh, Danvita, and Roger, and come back to you, perhaps in the corner, uh, Creighton, uh, for you to respond to any, uh, uh, provide any additional thoughts after listening to these three questions, yeah? so. One question comes from Muhammad Yoga Permana, uh, who is a PhD student uh, at the LSE from uh, and having come from Indonesia. Uh, it's a question that goes to Rita, but I guess also applicable to uh, a few other speakers as well. Uh, you said collective action needs to be evolved and as it, it is inefficient and sporadic compared to what can be done by local governments. How can local governments utilize such social movements in the future? Um, and especially uh, as we uh, expect the collaboration between citizens, collective actions, and local government do not end in Zoom meetings or public discussion. Uh, I guess this is a question that also will be related to you know, more thoughts about to what extent these local governments are willing to provide such a support. Another question coming from Sini Ko, uh, based in uh, Malaysia, uh, Monash University, Malaysia. Uh, what are your thoughts about the possibilities for bottom-up initiatives to transcend the divisions? and inequalities in societies uh, beyond the current crisis. And finally, a question from Amira, uh, who is from Universitas Indonesia. I would like to know the opinion of all speakers, so this, this goes to all the speakers to, uh, uh, today, how the condition of the pandemic might change the dynamics of government and civil society collaboration. So I suppose this is uh, bringing us back to the question uh, that Roger was also raising towards the end of his talk, you know, can civil society be made uh, a strong, strong part of the governance and arrangement in cities and beyond? So uh, perhaps either Deirdre or Rita you know, uh, uh, having a go. So Deirdre, uh, you yeah, first. I'm, I'm happy to, to look at that. Um, I would flag up that I've got a paper with my colleague Padmapane Perez in Third World Quarterly looking at citizen aid and social media after disaster, because I think it makes a really important point that Rita has made that these are groups of people who regularly swing into action 
in an emergency. Now, some of them roll out from other NGOs. So Seth and Amante are part of the NGO sector. They're doing something new. They might be doing something individual or volunteering in a new way or with a new enterprise, but they're, they're longstanding members of different formalized, regulated civil society organizations. So you've got uh, this idea about collaborating with local government, but you've got national government in the Philippines who's intervening in where that's legitimate. So we're seeing what people call red tagging, where there is an aid initiative and then the government declares that it's related to the um, communist resistance and that it is, it, it's a political activity. It is not uh, a citizen aid activity. So there is a way in, in which people getting formal government recognition are being um, profiled to make sure that they're not going to be building up allegiances to the left. Because you're, you're working in a society where you've got reciprocity as a norm. And so when you're delivering aid through whatever initiative or organization, you're building a political constituency. And this is seen as a threat to government legitimacy, even at the local level. And people are looking at control over cascades of resources as a way of obligating people and buying votes. So politics and aid are very much tied together. And the new legislation looks like it is an attempt to shore up authoritarianism and, and sort of purify that civil society sector is so that only government supporting groups and government supporting individuals are legitimized. Uh, in this paper that we've written, Padma and I, we, we look, you know, how desirable is it for these people to keep going beyond the crisis? They often do have important day jobs in adult education or in social enterprise. And, you know, how people can keep going, who should keep going? Do they have the capital? Do they have a market niche? Um, can this be made sustainable? It's really, really important um, to do that. So you, you need to think about, you know, these are the usual suspects who swing in to take action when the government can't act. Where are they usually? And can we you know, collectively afford to have them somewhere new? And then is it really desirable that they go through the routes to formalization? And that's a big debate in the Philippines, where often if you're getting government approval, it's taking weeks and your perishables are perishing, your staff are sitting around, and you're being asked to pay facilitation fees and, and um, to use particular suppliers, etc. So that dynamic of collaboration is is one we hope we can shift, you know, and it's but it's very local and it's also becoming intensely politicized because governments are seeing this as, you know, this is where the relief effort's been delivered, but it's a whole sphere that's out of governmental control. And there are some, you know, cowboy operators. There are also some really great models. And I think we actually need research to shift through who's who and, and what's working where. You know, in my examples, I had one very lovely formalized example, and I also had the same thing happening at a community level and very informally. And obviously, you know, people need to get back to their day jobs at the community level. That isn't sustainable, but it's desirable that it happened when it did. So these people can sort of swing into action and swing out of action. And the fact that they're not formalized or sustained is actually a good thing. Okay, thank you very much. Um, in the interest of time, I, I, I have to ask the remaining speakers to provide concise response. Uh, uh, 
maybe you start with Arita. You know, would, would you mind you know, providing your thoughts uh, using perhaps a minute? Sure, I'll, I'll be as quick as possible. So I, I'll just uh, address, first of all, um, I think there's always the temptation to uh, see collective action as something that is sort of like inefficient and sporadic. But I would also say that, you know, if you see a lot of governments and local governments, a lot of them are also inefficient and sporadic, you know. So uh, I think in that in that way, especially uh, in, in my observation in South, Southeast Asia. So in that way, uh, I think, you know, uh, these bottom up initiatives, I think uh, they do have a chance or uh, um, hopefulness to actually continue because they are uh, very much still needed. Um, and um, about the government and civil society collaboration, um, I would also continue from Deidre's point that, you know, probably if we just focus on the services, there, there is a possibility, you know, thinking that, you know, some governments also are uh, struggling and they do need these connections to the ground. So a lot of them are actually engaging civil society groups, uh, citizens and all that. But of course, it, it does come with a lot of uh, baggage as well. So um, I'm, I'm, I acknowledge that different government actors uh, may have different intentions, but the politicizing of, of this collaboration is really something that is uh, that is of concern. If we just look at the services, yes, probably, but if we look into the more ideological movements, uh, that become a bit more uh, sensitive because a lot of cooptations can happen along the way. Yeah. Mm. Thank you. Uh, Roger? Yeah, I just want to add uh, a quick thought, which is that uh, this relationship between civil society, democracy, and the local state, uh, if we think about that six weeks ago, we see, you know, we, we need to focus on who owns the street, who owns the public space, uh, who owns the public arena. If we look at it five or six weeks ago, that was owned by what in the West a lot of people called COVIDiots, people who said they didn't believe in the virus and they were very concerned about their individual rights being curtailed by undue state action. And a lot of people were making fun of these people. And uh, in the United States, these people were armed and dangerous, and they were, uh, you know, attacking the institutions of the state. Now look four, five, six later, weeks later, we have a completely different relationship between civil society, uh, democracy, the local state, and the, and the presence in the street. After the uh, murder of George Floyd and the eruption of civic unrest in the United States and Canada, but also many parts of Europe, many parts of the world in Africa, uh, that answer that question will be answered quite differently the relationship uh, of civil society democracy and the local state is now a completely different one and one that is much more hopeful than only four or five six weeks ago uh, because of that tragic murder of george floyd and the incredible mobilization capacity of black lives matter right uh Creighton, perhaps one uh, a couple of sentences and for you uh, for you to respond if i may Anything yeah. you want to add to, to your previous intervention? Sure. Yeah, I think uh, just briefly that the relationship between the government and civil society, even though they might have similar interests or aims, uh, they often tend to go about these aims in different ways and might have different ideas about how to achieve them. So there will uh, always be some antagonisms between government and civil society groups uh, because of that, uh, as I've observed in my own research. So I don't see that really changing um, in a post-COVID uh, world, but I'd be happy to be uh, proven wrong. Well, thanks so much again. Um, uh, I'm, uh, I'm very sorry that you know, because of the time constraint, you know, we are not able to address all the questions. 
but the questions that you know, the members of the audience have raised you know, thus far are really important, you know, important. and I'm sure uh, many forthcoming events at the LSE and around the world will be you know, very much touching upon those questions. So stay tuned and, and follow us in, uh, in future events. Many thanks again to uh, all the speakers for your fantastic interventions, to all the members of the audience again for being here today, and also staff at LSE events team and at the Associate Hawk Southeast Asia Center for making this event happen. COVID-19 pandemic you know, does present huge challenges uh, to our societies across the world, and the least we can do now is to reflect upon, and, uh, upon the social contradictions and inequalities the pandemic has exposed more vividly, and also compelling us to think about how we can work towards the betterment of societies and make them more inclusive along the lines of class, gender, ethnicity, and race. So well, that's all for today. Uh, stay healthy, keep well, and we hope to uh, we hope to see all of you again sometime soon. Thank you very much.